Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. The Borg are an amalgam of cybernetically enhanced humanoid drones of multiple species. Organized as an interconnected collective with a hive mind inhabiting a vast region of space. They operate towards one single-minded purpose. To add the biological and technological distinctiveness of other species to their own in the pursuit of perfection. They are the adversary of autonomy. The definition of slavery. They are the juggernauts of an infinite number of quadrants and parallel dimensions, including the mirror universe. The mirror universe has never been so treacherous. Hello, you're listening to the Treks and Sci-Fi Microcast, The Ready Room. I'm Kenny, and I play the Captain. As you can hear, I am solo this week, as the RPG is on a little hiatus. We're preparing for Season 9. We have a lot of great things planned. So there isn't. this isn't your normal Ready Room. Instead, what we're going to do is, since we're preparing for Season 9, we thought we would read all of the character profiles. So I gathered up a bunch of the forum members and asked them to read some of the character profiles. So what you're about to hear are all of our main characters for Season 9 of the RPG. Hopefully, I think we're starting in a week or so, the new Season 9 RPG. So you may, we may have one more unusual ready room coming up next week and um, then we should be back to our regular scheduled ready room so hopefully you'll enjoy uh, hearing about each of the characters you can find this information at the trucks and sci-fi forums you can go to www.trucksandsci-fi.com and click on the forum link and there's a whole rpg section and this is players character profiles i think is what the thread is called and you can actually read all them and some of these uh character profiles actually go pretty long uh we only did the first we read the first post of each one which is just the initial post Uh, some people built on their characters so if you're interested to read a little bit more behind the scenes of the characters definitely check it out all right so uh Here we go, uh, and take it away. Character's name, Nathaniel Jacob Quinn. Rank, Captain. Born, 2305.9. Place of birth, San Francisco, California, Earth. Gender, male. Species of origin, half Betazoid, half Elorian. Hair, Brown, short. Eyes, greenish gray. Height, 5'11. Weight, 175. Skin tone, light brown. Telepathic and empathic status. 
varies from person to person or species to species. He can read minds, feel emotions, and feel presence. Is known to be one of the most powerful telepaths in Starfleet. Body, muscular. Face, very tranquil. Marital status, single. Children, possibly one. Habits, answering the question before it is asked of him. Quarters, has lots of candles, usually doesn't use lights. Very relaxing, comfortable atmosphere. Likes, helping people. Dislikes, people who say they want help but don't really listen. Ambitions and goals, to explore the unknown. Temperament, calm, cool, quiet. Hobbies, classical music, mythology studies, reading, astrophysics. Family, mother, Anashta Quinn, Elorian, guidance counselor with Starfleet Academy. Father, Jared Quinn, Betazoid, physics instructor with Starfleet Academy. Siblings, sister, Jennifer Quinn, civilian, owns and runs a cafe in Old San Francisco. Brother, Douglas Quinn, Lieutenant Commander, posted to the Kyushu, was killed at Wharf 359. Sister, Anina Quinn, high school student, wants to follow a family tradition, will be entering Starfleet next year. History, my mother was part of the colony that was rescued by Enterprise B when the Nexus destroyed their convoy. She relocated to Earth and lived in San Francisco. She met my father 80 years later and fell in love. They got married the following year. It was a strange courtship, everyone told them, a Betazoid marrying an Elorian, but they didn't care because they loved each other. They settled down in San Francisco and took jobs with Starfleet, my mother a guidance counselor and my father a physics teacher. Both were very dedicated to Starfleet. Jennifer was born first, then Douglas, myself, then Anina. My whole family has revolved around Starfleet. I can remember when my dad used to sit me down and explain the history of it all. I always knew I was different. As a child, I remember my father explaining to me that the differences between me and the other children made me very special. As far back as I can remember, I could always feel others' emotions, but was unable to read minds until I was 13. I had a hard childhood, as you can imagine. I had a hard time trying to separate my feelings from everyone else's feelings. I remember taking special classes in school and always feeling like an outcast. My parents did their best at giving me a normal childhood, but I was different. My older sister and brother both were unable to read thoughts and only my younger sister can feel emotions. I don't know why out of four children, I was the only one with full telepathy and empathic abilities. I've always known that I have wanted to be in Starfleet. So when I was old enough, I followed the family tradition and entered. Even after my brother's death at Wharf 359, I still wanted to be part of Starfleet. It's in the blood. Now that I graduated, I couldn't wait until my first mission. I was fortunate enough to be assigned to the USS Insania. She's a great ship and has a great captain at the helm. I look forward to fulfilling my destiny. During my time aboard the USS Insania, we had encountered numerous creatures, gone through man-made wormholes which led to the Beta Quadrant where we encountered cloud creatures. While in the Beta Quadrant, we encountered a creature with enormous powers. This creature died, but before he died, he transferred his essence, his very being, 
his knowledge into my mind. We later found out that he was an ancient changeling that left the Founders centuries ago to explore the vast amount of space. I have all his information and experience in my head and I am slowly trying to understand it. He has been places that I cannot even put into words. We made it back to the Alpha Quadrant and was slightly caught up in the Dominion War. I was mortally wounded by my own captain, but later found out that it was an imposter. The being that shared my mind healed me. He told me that I cannot die because I have not fulfilled my destiny. While trying to figure that out, we battled Borg-like creatures, which we called Bizarro Borgs. We have dealt with inner space beings, subspace beings, alternate universe beings, and so much more. During this time, I have been promoted from Ensign to Lieutenant Commander to Commander, and I have also gone from Counselor to Third in Command. I can say without a doubt that the past six years on board the USS Insania has been one adventure after another. I look forward to my new assignment aboard the USS Tiberius, NCC-63642, as our first officer. The first mission aboard the USS Tiberius didn't go quite as planned. We lost our captain due to the mysterious Iconian people, and I was made acting captain. Our second mission was to find the renegade Akamirians. Of course, it wasn't an easy mission, and there was more than Starfleet had expected. It was a hard mission, and my new crew did exceptionally well. I was awarded Starfleet Achievement Medal for Heroism. We are currently back on Earth awaiting repairs. I have been officially made captain of the USS Tiberius, and my first official mission was unofficial. We traveled to Romulus to rescue my first officer's father. Even though the mission was a success, things didn't go quite as planned. We are currently on our way back to Vulcan to drop off Cyril's father. While on our way back to Vulcan, a strange virus began to infect the crew of the Tiberius. By the time we reached Vulcan, one-third of the crew were dead and another one-third were sick. I, too, am sick. The bio-gel packs aboard the Tiberius were also infected, and I had to make the tough decision to save the planet of Vulcan or save my ship. Commander Severil and I set the auto-destruct and blew up the Tiberius. We were then quarantined for a year on a space station orbiting Vulcan. Eventually, Arya, along with Riley Dret's help, found a cure, and we were released. While on shore leave on Earth, a romance began with Nicholas Took. There is something very special about this man, and I look forward to seeing where this relationship goes. Starfleet has given me another commission, this time a brand new Intrepid Class II ship. She's a beauty, and rightfully fits her name, USS Arabella. I brought back the remaining crew of the USS Tiberius, and we look forward to the adventures waiting for us. Character's name... Commander Savril, approximately 59 Earth years old. Place of birth, Shakar, located on the edge of the Vulcan Forge on the planet Vulcan. Gender, female. Species of origin, Vulcan. Hair, long, dark brown. Eyes, brown. Height, 5'10". Weight, 125. Skin tone, medium to fair. Body, tall and slender. Face, Vulcan in appearance. Upswept eyebrows, pointed ears, oval face, shining brown eyes. Telepathic and empathic abilities. Contact telepath. Marital status, married to a human. 
alias David Locke, a Section 31 operative. Ship's record indicates that he is an archaeologist. The records also state that David and Severil are separated, a status imposed by David for the protection of his family. Children, four-year-old twins, a boy named Naval and a girl named Marin. Habits, tucking her hair behind her ear. Quarters, her children's artwork is displayed on the walls of her quarters on the Arabella and home on Vulcan. Ancient Vulcan artifacts are spread throughout. A hologram of her husband is also present. David personalized a program of himself, and it greets each children as they wake and help tuck them in at bedtime. He also acts as a guard dog. Likes. Historical and archaeological discussions with colleagues. Time with her children. Vulcan spice tea. Dislikes. Arrogance, lies, and violence. Basically, the nature of her husband's profession. Ambitions and goals. That her husband leaves Section 31 and joins her on the vessel she is currently serving on. That her children would grow up and value both their Vulcan and human lineage. Temperament. Kind, charitable, soft-spoken, but not a pushover. Hobbies. Gardening. Playing the violin. Notable Vulcan family members include her great-grandmother T'Pol, Father Carell, the grandson of T'Pol, a diplomat who is involved in Ambassador Spock's mission to further the cause of the Romulan-Vulcan unification. Mother Sarith, a professor of history at Starfleet Academy. Siblings, none. Character history. As a child, her father's story of their Vulcan ancestors stirred her to wander the terrain in search of the tangible trace of their ancestors' long-vanished existence. She formed such a connection to the people in her father's tells that her thoughts of them became virtually perpetual. What did they look like? Did they look like me? How did they live? Her questions were inquiries that could never be completely satisfied, yet tangible evidence could be uncovered and studied and so began her interest in archaeology. Inspired by her grandmother's service, Savril attended Starfleet Academy, where she studied archaeology and anthropology. Seven years before her assignment to Tiberius, Savril was stationed aboard the science research vessel, the USS Anasazi, as the ship's archaeological and anthropology officer. The ship's primary function was to explore the ruins of the mysterious ancient civilization known as the Solish. Starfleet designated their operation as top secret. Unbeknownst to the crew of the Anastasi, Section 31 inserted an operative, alias David Locke. Within the team of archaeologists, his assignment was to gather intel and his mission continued for two years. Over that time, he became romantically involved with Servril. On the last day of his assignment, he proposed to her. She accepted, and they were wed on Riza on her shore leave. No guests attended. One year later, after the birth of their twins, David confessed that he was not who he pretended to be. He argued that if he had been honest, he would have jeopardized her life. David had chosen to live with the lie rather than risk her safety. When the danger had passed, he chose to tell her the truth rather than continue with the ruse. David vowed that his profession was the only facet of himself that was false. 
He told her he would leave Section 31 for good, but before his resignation could be formalized, he would have to persuade his superiors to permit him to leave. He alleged this was an exceedingly difficult task to undertake, and he warned that it could take years before he could resign completely. If Savril were not Vulcan, she would have been enraged. She detests dissent, but loves him despite the lies he told to protect her. Although it is not an ideal arrangement, she cherishes their marriage. Soon after David departed for his next mission, Savril accepted a post aboard the USS Tiberius as Chief Science Officer. Though it rarely ever comes, David takes an opportunity to see his family. Savril was promoted to Commander of the Tiberius and awarded the Combat Readiness Medal for demonstrating superior combat abilities while in active operations against an attacking Akamirian vessel. Savril's DNA was taken without her knowledge and used to create a binary clone. Her genetic material was combined with that of Eric James to create an adult version of Arya, a child that was born to the two in an alternate timeline. Initially, Savril refused to accept the clone as a daughter, but over time, she developed a meaningful relationship with Arya and befriended Eric James, who had been a stranger prior to this event. Soon after, Savril contracted the Lucas virus, a pathogen that was initially passed telepathically. It was designed for the express purpose of wiping out the Vulcans, who strove to unify their people with their sundered kin, the Romulans. Her father, a diplomat within this movement, was the intended target. Savril was merely a vessel. Her children were also infected and came dangerously close to death. To save them, she agreed to have them placed in cryostasis. Arya James discovered an inhibitor and, with the help of Ryla Dredd, the cure that later saved them. The virus soon mutated to an airborne disease and struck down a third of the Tiberius crew while en route to Vulcan. Before the ship's orbit decay and crashed into the planet, killing more people, she aided Captain Quinn in destroying the ship whose biogel packs had been infected with the same virus. After a year of quarantine on a space station near her home planet, she left Starfleet and she and her children took up residence on Vulcan. The virus infected her ability to suppress her emotions, and on more than one occasion she lost control in public. These instances were witnessed by other Vulcans and actions had been taken against her. She was dismissed from her position as a master at Shakar Academy and attempts were made to declare her an outcast. Savril left Vulcan to avoid the hearings at her great-grandmother's request. T'Pol died shortly after. Savril recently accepted Captain Quinn's offer to serve with him as first officer on the USS Arabella. Character's name, Lieutenant Commander Eric James. Stats, born 2299. Place of birth, USS Enterprise B. Gender, male. Species of origin, Elorian slash Nacine hybrid. Hair, black. Eyes, gray with semi-metallic flecks. Height, 6 feet. Weight, 187 pounds. Skin tone, copper slash bronze brown. Telepathic and empathic status. Cyberpathy and cyberkinesis. Telepathy, but at short range. Possible other dormant psychic abilities from father's side. Body, athletic build. Face, clean shaven. Marital status, separated. Children. Arya, reborn daughter from alternate timeline. Starfleet records currently list him as having no children. Habits. 
designing ships on holodeck or Aurora's Hollow Matrix via Cyberpathic Link, testing out his creation before he unveils them to others. Quarters. Captain's quarters aboard the Aurora. Likes. Cutting-edge technology, piloting, ship design, nanotechnology. Dislikes. The Borg. Failure. Ambitions and goals. Eric's goal is to expand the technological nature of the Federation. His goal is to make sure that his adopted people are prepared when the Borg invades again, and he is sure they will. This makes him driven in working to expand technology and integrate newly acquired technology into Starfleet ship frames. Temperament? Calm. Hobbies? None. Family? Mother? Elrissa. Father? Unknown. Siblings? Unknown. Character History. Updated. 2299. Eric James is born in the Nexus and lives several lifetimes passing through the worlds of those that entered before him and after him. Eric James is born again on the USS Enterprise B. He seems a healthy enough child, and the memories of his life before are hidden in his infant mind. His mother claimed that he was named by his experiences in the Nexus. 2340. Eric begins living on Vulcan and is only slightly older than Savril physically and mentally. Both are human equal to around 13 or 14 and entering puberty. 2364. Eric begins to work with Starfleet on technologies to counter the Borg threat and officially enlists in Starfleet. 2371. With the reappearance of the Nexus, Eric begins to remember the lifetimes that he had before being born. These new insights allow him to theorize on the future direction of technology. 2373. Eric is assigned to the Sovereign Class Project. Eric is promoted to Lieutenant, finishes Sixth Doctorate. Timeline changes due to Borg interference at Earth's first contact. Arya is swept from the timeline and is presumed erased, but gives her Katra to her father. Eric takes leave of absence from Starfleet and throws himself into getting his daughter back. Saren begins building what would become the Caretakers. 2374. Eric spends a year working on the Prometheus Project as a civilian consultant. 2376. Eric officially returns to Starfleet and is given the go-ahead for the Aurora Project and moves his work to Leah Station, where he encounters David and Savril. Aurora Project enters prototype phase, and Aurora Hologram with Arya's Katra is brought online. Saren cements her power in an alternate universe. 2377. The second Aurora prototype, Arya, is constructed as a potential temporal vessel for DTI. Eric is given command and ownership of the Aurora Project as part of the agreement with DTI. 2378. Eric is married while on extended mission with the Aurora. 2380. Eric posted on Tiberius and Arya's Katra is reborn into a binary clone body that is near what would have been her chronological age. 2382. Elizabeth, age 1, joins the James family in a predestination paradox. 2383. Saren returns briefly. Arya, Saren, and Savril return to the alternate universe in search of Naval. Saren becomes pregnant with a child of Nathan Quinn. The following is the profile for Chief Medical Officer Dr. Casey Peterson. His current rank is Lieutenant Commander, and he's the Chief Medical Officer on board the USS Arabella. He was born in Texas on Earth. He's, of course, a male. His species of origin is Beta Z and human. He has brown hair. He is 5'10 and 160 pounds, and his skin tone is fair. He has extremely high empathic and telepathic abilities, and his body type is medium athletic. His face is oval. His marital status is that he is married to Myela O'Leary, 
and that happened during season six. He has no children yet. His habits? He likes to play cards with the captain and XO. His quarters are neat and well-organized. He likes exotic food, karate, and four-dimensional chess. He dislikes patients who don't follow their doctor's orders. His ambition and goals? To one day be the head of Starfleet Medical. His temperament? Even tempered with a keen sense of humor and a practical joker. His hobbies? Iconian archaeology, xenobiology, reading medical journals, and cooking. His family are all deceased. He does have awards and medals. He got a purple heart during season two for being wounded in the line of duty while trying to save a fellow crew member. Here's his history. Casey lived a happy life until his late teens. He lived aboard a series of different starships and star bases with his parents who were both Starfleet officers. His life was happy, that is, until the Battle of Wolf 359. Only three weeks before the battle, Casey left his parents for his final year at Starfleet Academy. Then, that fateful day, his world collapsed. His family was killed on the starship he once called home. After a year out from the Academy, he returned to complete his education with a newfound drive to do his family proud. He excelled in the medical sciences as well as a Starfleet diplomacy and galactic law, as well as Iconian archaeology. Graduating with a degree in Vulcan, Klingon, and Betazoid medicine, and Starfleet law and diplomacy, and as he's received several citations in alien xenobiology from the Vulcan Academy of Science. He has even lectured to first-year Starfleet students on xenobiology and Iconian history. Dr. Peterson was awarded the Purple Heart after Mission 2 uh, for being wounded in the line of duty while trying to save a fellow crew member. Dr. Peterson was, was resigned to Starfleet Medical after recovering from a genetically engineering virus that he contracted on in Mission 5. This virus also infected the gel packs of the USS Tiberius, forcing the destruction of the ship in order to contain it and prevent its spread to Vulcan. While waiting for a reassignment to the new ship, Dr. Peterson took a teaching assignment at Starfleet Academy and taught advanced surgical skills to fourth-year medical students. During that time, Dr. Peterson was married to Myella O'Leary, who is a certified pathologist. After teaching for a year on Earth, Casey was reassigned to the USS Arabella at the end of Season 6, where he is currently serving as the Chief Medical Officer. Computer. Access character profiles for Lieutenant Commander Catan. Access denied. Okay, uh, computer, access those files, please. Logs accessed. Thank you, computer. And here we go. Character's name, Lieutenant Commander Catan of the House of Gaul. Born in the Earth year 2356. Place of birth, Avisky a Klingon colony near the Romulan frontier. This colony was a popular port of leave for Klingon crews returning from raids into Romulan space during the late 2200s. Gender, male. Species of origin, human. Hair, black. Eyes, dark brown. Height, 5 foot 11 inches. Weight, 205 pounds. Skin tone, dark copper brown reflecting his African, Middle Eastern ancestry. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, medium height, athletic build. 
face. Catan's face is a reflection of his rough upbringing. An angry, dark red scar runs down the left side of his face, bisecting his left eyebrow and continuing down his left cheek to end at the jawline. He wears his hair in the style of his adopted people, a shaggy, shoulder-length mane of ebon locks. It is worn tied back in a ponytail while in uniform, a nod to Starfleet regulations. His neatly trimmed black goatee strikes some as being a bit sinister in appearance. Marital status? Single. Children? None. Habits? As a human raised among Klingons, he is driven by a burning obsession to hone his martial prowess, both physical and mental. Much of his spare time is devoted to training with traditional Klingon edged weapons and to the practice of myriad hand-to-hand combat styles. Katan also has a keen interest in military history and combat tactics. He has a growing collection of texts by and about some of the most famous military leaders in history. Quarters His living space is dominated by a small collection of antique human and Klingon edged weapons, supplemented with a growing collection of military history texts. He also has a few miniature replicas of some of the more famous ships in Starfleet history. Likes Military history, weapons training, strong-willed women, Ractagino, and the Majoran dish, Hasperet. Dislikes Overly verbose people, timidity, bureaucracy. Oh yeah, and gah. Katan also has a deeply ingrained distrust of Romulans something that he is successfully, but slowly, overcoming. Ambitions and Goals To find that which has eluded him for most of his adult life, a sense of belonging. Having spent a considerable amount of time with Starfleet counselors for much of his career, Katan recognizes that his attitude and combativeness have their roots in his deeply seated feelings of being an outsider. Armed with the understanding that this handicap is a detriment to his career, he struggles daily to overcome his insecurities. His long-term goal? To finally silence his inner demons and eventually command a ship of his own. Temperament Short-tempered and aggressive, Katan has been criticized in the past for his lack of patience with those who failed to live up to his expectations. When faced with a new or threatening situation, he has a tendency to hide his insecurities behind a combative demeanor. His training record is unfortunately filled with black marks for insubordination and violent behavior. This has turned to be a a major hindrance to the advancing of his career. Hobbies Reading, physical training, and building miniature replicas of historic Starfleet vessels. Catan's family is relatively small. His mother, adoptive mother that is, is Kamala of the House of Gaul. His adoptive father, Tanag, also of the House of Gaul, and he has one sibling, an adoptive brother named Korak of the House of Gaul. Character History Born the son of Federation diplomats attached to the fledgling embassy on the Klingon outpost Abiski, he was orphaned at the age of three in an attack on the site by Romulan raiders. Although his parents died in the ground phase of the attack, they did so while fighting shoulder-to-shoulder with the Klingon guards assigned to repel the invaders. Impressed by the courage shown by the human couple, a Klingon guardsman named Tanag felt honor-bound to care for their infant son. 
the child was adopted into Tanag's household and spent the next 15 years growing up within the Klingon Empire. His upbringing was rough. His adoptive parents refused to do him the dishonor of shielding him from the trials and tribulations common to any Klingon youth. The comparative fragility of his human physiology led to more than a few injuries as he was growing up, many of them life-threatening. His obvious physical differences often led to him being dismissed by his peers as a Jegpui, which is a term reserved for uh, non-Klingon subjects of the Empire. The Jegpupi have a status that is greater than that of slaves, but less than that of full citizens. Katan constantly trained, pushing himself to the limits of his endurance in an attempt to keep up with his more robust Klingon peers, but eventually came to the realization that he would have to supplement his strength with his wits in order to survive. His efforts eventually led him to being generally accepted by his immediate circle. However, he often found himself being challenged by some of the more conservative Klingons who questioned the presence of a human living among them. More often than not, his tenacity and quick thinking resulted in him earning the respect of his detractors. After reaching the Age of Ascension, it seemed that his lifelong dream of entering the Klingon Defense Force would come to pass. Impressed by his grasp of tactical planning, and by his not only having survived, but having thrived in the Klingon culture, his mentors offered him postings as Khan and tactical officer on a number of different ships. But while his professional life was improving, his personal life was soon torn to shreds. A romance with a young Klingon woman from one of the more influential great houses ended in tragedy, and shattered any illusions he had of being fully accepted by his adoptive society. Disillusioned, he left the Empire and made his way to the Federation to explore his human roots. Eventually, he was accepted into Starfleet Academy, and after a tumultuous nine years, he barely managed to graduate. Catan's service record is marked by the recurrence of entries regarding an overly aggressive nature and borderline insubordinate behavior, as well as an inability to work well with others. These black marks have put his career in serious jeopardy. Several members of the Admiralty, however, feel convinced that the conflicts are the result of a culturally based communications barrier, and that an officer with his unique insight to the culture of the Klingon Empire could be an asset to the fleet. Because of this, rather than being booted out of Starfleet, he has found himself being repeatedly transferred to different postings. He has served on five different starships since graduating, with his most recent posting being the Relief Tactical Officer and Security Officer on the Defiant Class USS Ranger. After nearly coming to blows with the Executive Officer of the Ranger, his career is now on its last legs. In a last-ditch effort to salvage his career, Starfleet administrators requested his transfer to a rather unique vessel, the Acura-class USS Tiberius. Their reasoning was twofold. First and foremost, the Tiberius was home to one of the most highly regarded counselors in the fleet, Chief Counselor Margon. Secondly, it is believed that a ship whose crew is made up of such an unusually large number of telepaths might minimize the likelihood of misunderstandings stemming from his Klingon upbringing and help him to complete his transition to Federation life. Character's name, Joseph DeCollin. Born 38 years ago. Place of birth, Brisbane, Australia. Gender, male. Species of origin, human. Rank, lieutenant. Hair, black. Eyes, left eye green, right eye gray. Height, 5 foot 11 inches. Weight, 90 kilograms. 
Skin tone, white, natural tan. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, average, broad shoulders. Face, high brow, hawk-like nose, square chin. Marital status, widowed. Children, two children both murdered with their mother. Habits, suffer from slight OCD, reads books. Quarters, a few photographs of family, books, and old-style gramophone. Likes, poker, single malt whiskey, real ale, and jazz. Dislikes, loud annoying people, and fizzy water. Ambition and goals, to make more of his career. Temperament, somber, good-natured, slightly sarcastic, and laid-back. Hobbies, paints landscapes, and likes to paint people's dreams. Family, mother, died when he was four. Father, an institution for the insane, now aged 79. Siblings, brother called Theron, ran away from home, age 14. Character history. Joseph was born in Brisbane in a small mountain village largely untouched by the modern world. His mother died when he was just four years old due to complications in childbirth when his brother Theron was born. This had a profound effect on his father, who became a recluse. When Joseph was 18, his father began to drift into a serious state of depression. Unable to cope with a continuous feeling of guilt regarding his mother's death and subsequent depression of his father, Theron ran away. Joseph searched for his 14-year-old brother, but came home after two months of searching, feeling lost. Joseph's father, Karam, suffered a massive breakdown when hearing about the news of Theron's departure, and Joseph had no choice but to have him hospitalized. Feeling a need to leave the village, Joseph applied to Starfleet Academy and was accepted. After years at the Academy, he was signed up to his first ship. It was while serving on his first five-year leg that he met his wife. Juliet was a beautiful medical assistant, and they met while playing against each other in a chess tournament. After dating for a year, they were married by the captain and enjoyed the rest of their tour together as a couple. When they returned to Earth for new Starfleet orders, they took a brief holiday with their two newborn twins. It was on this holiday that the tragedy struck. Six masked men attacked the R&R colony in which they were relaxing. They killed Juliet, who was running to protect her children. Joseph, who at the time was attempting to fire cover fire for an escaping family, turned around to see his family die. In a fit of rage, he ran at the attackers, killing two of them with his phaser fire. Three of the attackers turned on him and advanced, covering their leader, who made his escape. It was at this moment, with rage tearing through his mind, he blanked out. He came to with three men lying dead at his feet, their unmasked face distorted with fear and horror. Joseph was found by Starfleet medical team and taken to the hospital. It was here that he spent a year grieving and recovering from the stress of seeing not only his family killed, but that of the other innocent families. He came out of the attack unscathed, bar a strange change of color in one of his eyes. After years of medical and psychological healing, Joseph was allowed to leave the medical center. 
The Board of Medics and Starfleet itself sanctioned the release of Joe on the grounds that they could find no evidence that he was responsible for the deaths of the three men found near him on the day of the Arandar attack. After a recent encounter with his brother, who informed him that it was not Joe who killed the attackers who killed his wife, Theron also removed a biochip from Joe's eye, resulting in no heated anger and anomalies coming from his eye. Joseph has been given the role of Chief of Security from Captain Quinn, and has now started his duties aboard the USS Arabella. He has made friends with Catan, who he met at the lounge for many a drink. During an away mission with the Arabella team, Joseph DeCollin was severely injured, saving Ensign Dunn and a small child. Close to death, he was rushed back to the ship and was saved by the medical team. Waking from his brief coma, the first person he saw was Nurse Susan Kane, who he first met back on Earth after his convalescence. She nursed him back to health. During his rest, he received a secret communication from his brother, Theron, who informed him that their father had escaped the asylum that Joseph had put him in. Also, news reached him that his own father was the man known as the Employer, the man responsible for creating and inserting the infamous AI chip. Theron also told Joseph of his new mission with Section 31. Character's name, Karath. Stats, age, 38. Place of birth, IKS Katanko. Gender, male. Species, Klingon. Hair, light brown. Eyes, hazel. Height, 5'10". Weight, 155 pounds. Skin tone, tan. Telepathic status, none. Body, Lean, muscular legs. Face, subtle brow ridges, clean-shaven. Marital status, married. Children, none yet, two targs. Quarters, warm and inviting with many personal effects. Likes, engineering, exercise, interacting with different cultures, blood wine and song. Dislikes, being stereotyped as a typical Klingon, batlet sparring. Ambitions and goals, being chief engineer of Starship to eventually retire and teach at Starfleet Academy. Temperament, moderate, introspective, analytical, somewhat distant, a bit of a loner. Hobbies, makbra, Klingon martial arts. Multi-week solo treks into the wilderness of various worlds, stellar cartography, warp theory, primary ship weapons modifications. Family, Grandson of legendary Klingon Commander Kang, born on his flagship, no siblings. Father was middle-ranked officer serving without distinction in the Imperial fleet. Character history. Born into a noble family, renowned for their bravery in battle, Karath was always different. His legendary grandfather had high expectation for Karath's father, who never was able to live up to those expectations. Rather than try and make up for his father's failings, Karath found himself more comfortable in the company of non-Klingons and enrolled in Starfleet. Small and slight of build and light of coloration for his species, he was ever comfortable in the home world and often found himself at odds with his countrymen and stereotypes of other cultures as to how Klingon should be. An accomplished engineer as well as an athlete. Computer, please begin recording. Personnel file. Name, Chafras Zrem. Rank, Lieutenant. Born 2343. Place of birth, Andoria. Gender, male. Species of origin, Andorian. Hair, white. Eyes, blue. Height, 
511, weight 170, skin tone blue, body type, fairly tall for an Andorian, slight build but in good physical condition, face, typical Andorian in appearance, slight forehead ridges and antennae, telepathic empathic abilities, none, marital status, not married, children, none presently, habits, doesn't sleep much and enjoys walking during those times instead or working on his handcrafted telescope. Likes and hobbies, astronomy, Vulcan history and culture, holodeck recreation, cooking and reading. Dislikes violence, weapons, warm climates. Temperament, quiet, introspective and thoughtful. Mother, Shifras Trinia. Father, Shifras Zran. Zram had an awkward childhood. Growing up in Andoria, he never really fit in. The only child whose father was a high-ranking member of the Andorian Imperial Guard, it was expected he would follow in his father's footsteps. However, Zram had never approved of violence and started to study the ways of the Vulcan's peaceful and non-violent approach to the universe. This put him at odds with his father, and when he was old enough, Zram entered Starfleet Academy. Zrem did well at the academy and excelled in the sciences. He has an especially good knack for astronomy and exobiology. He greatly loved learning about other species and their cultures. During his academy days, he spent every leave he had visiting other Federation worlds. Zrem first visited Vulcan during this time. Even though he went during a cooler period on Vulcan, he did find the heat difficult, but it didn't stop him from greatly enjoying his time there. Upon graduating from the academy, Ensign Zrem was assigned to the science vessel, the USS Shepard. This was an older Obereth-class vessel that was assigned to navigate the edges of the Alpha Quadrant. He did well aboard the ship, becoming very useful on their deep space missions. Eventually, Zrem was promoted to lieutenant and recently was reassigned to the USS Tiberius as the assistant chief science officer under the command of Commander Servril. Later, after the Tiberius was destroyed, he was reassigned to the USS Arabella. Computer, end recording. And now information about Chief Counselor Margon. He's 112 years old and a Bolian. He uh, was born on Bolaris Four. He's a male, doesn't have any hair at all. His eyes are black. He's about 5'8", 275 pounds, and his skin tone is blue. He doesn't have any type of telepathic or empathic status. He's got a very round body. His face is round. He's not married. Both of his wife and his co-wife contracted an airborne terminal illness and were assisted in suicide called the double effect principle. He's got three children, two girls and one boy. Actually, the, the boy is deceased now. Uh, he enjoys late-night reading in the mess hall. He curls up next to the window and reads various books. He oftentimes shares and reads chapters to crew members that happen to be there that late. He also loves to play an ancient or ancient West movies for the crew. His quarters are small and studious. He has many books, actually uh, paper ones, but most recently he has a brand-new quarters on the Arabella that are holographic, so he can make his quarters look like however he wants them to look. He likes long walks and good conversation, 
coffee and tea, root beer with vinegar, fried chicken, Klingon food, hot sauce, and acidy foods. And he likes cats. Yes, not, not as food, but as pets. He doesn't like dogs very much. He doesn't really like weapons at all. He can use them, but he doesn't like them. And he doesn't like people that won't try. His ambition and goals are to help the crew that he serves get along with one another and go forward as a cohesive group to explore the galaxy. His temperament is bold yet gentle. Always has something to say, but is firm. He tends to talk too much. His hobbies. Margon is an avid musician. He plays the Bolian Martra, a musical instrument much like a guitar with eight strings. He also likes to play a glo- or globule timber with neuron interface, a round computerized synthesizer with millions of sounds in it that hooks up to the brain patterns of the individual who plays it. He actually uses this in his practice to soothe his patients and get them to open up. As far as his family go, his mother is deceased. His father is named Mafa, and he lives on the Bolian homeworld. He has siblings, three um, brothers, Mornon, Quilber, and Morif, and Margon is the youngest. Margon has always liked working with people since he was a young child. Um, he entered the neighborhood children, or entertained the neighborhood children with his way of listening and sharing. He grew up to marry his childhood sweetheart and her friend, his co-wife. With his wives, he had three children, but a tragic thing happened when his wives were out exploring a new site for their home. They unearthed a deadly spore that infected their lungs with a terminal illness. As it is custom on Bolian, the wives, instead of suffering, committed assisted suicide in a ritual death called the Double Effect Principle. His children were never the same, and neither was he. It became so bad that he underwent a process known as memory enhancing. This synthetically altered his feelings of loss and replaced it with a feeling of hope. He waited a few years and then left his children, who were grown now, with his father on the homeworld and caught a transport ship to Deep Space Nine. From there, he visited his cousin Morn, who suggested that he move to Earth, and he heard that there was an opening at Starfleet Academy in the barbershop, and he took advantage of it. He regularly uh, cut the captain's hair while the captain attended Starfleet Academy. This is Captain Bell, the original captain of the Tiberius. They became friends, and at the urging of his friend, he applied for the Academy. Um, Captain Bell felt that Margon's way of talking and encouraging him would be useful for others. Many agreed, and after much apprehension, he applied for the role, or applied for the job and uh, for Starfleet, and made his way through the Academy in the counseling department. During his schooling, the captain would contact him via subspace and ask his advice on many situations. So he graduated at the top of his class, and upon graduation was requested for the captain's ship, and he served with Captain Bell ever since. Of course, after Captain Bell disappeared, uh, he now serves Captain Quinn on the Arabella and loves every moment of it. There you go. That's a little bit of Margon's character. Character's name... Ensign Spring Mackie Farmer. Stats. Born. Place of birth. Fertilier. Clearly a mistranslation. The spoken translation of the inhabitants' name for their planet is Fertile Dirt. This is an agricultural planet full of farmers and artists. See below for further information on Fertilier. Gender. Female. Species of origin. Fertilian. Hair. None, but affects a blonde wig. Eyes. Facing forward. Height. Medium. Weight. Medium. Skin tone pale. Telepathic and empathetic status similar. Racial abilities, limitations. Fertilians have no auditory organs whatsoever. They are deaf and have no spoken language. 
as you can guess, this has led to a very drawn-out first contact situation. Their primary method of communication is olfactory. They produce and decrypt scents. This ability to sense moods and ameliorate situations makes them natural diplomats. However, this can be problematic in a command structure, so her scent glands are usually encased, and she employs them... And she employs an olfactory interface with the onboard computer. Her olfactory sense is comparable to low-grade telepathy. It's hard to hide a secret from her. Body. The fertilier natural facial gills have been shifted from three vertical slits on either side of her nose to just below the jawline. Farmer says it's so to facilitate her translator matrix, but it's really a cosmetic choice. She wants to look human. Face appears human. Marital stats, single, has never had a remote a romantic liaison. Children, none. Habits, removes musk encasing when alone. Honestly finds it uncomfortable, but wouldn't admit it to anyone. Prefers music at high volume and quarters. Recycles things not in use and replicates whatever she requires. Unsentimental. Quarters, appears unlived in, as there are no personal effects and evidence, although the bed is sometimes left unmade. Smells real good. Impersonal art hangs on the walls. Likes. Loves most music, as it translates to scent more clearly than spoken words. Favorite artists? Mozart, Elvis Presley, and any Klingon opera. Finds humans hilarious as they have almost no control over their musk. Loves first contract contact situations. Dislikes. The Borg. They smell like machines. In sickbay when it's been recently cleaned. Ambitions and goals. Not ambitious, likes the idea of furthering the Federation's goals, wants to travel forever. Temperament, peaceful, not aspiring. Good sense of humor, lives fully in the present, tries to ameliorate uncomfortable social situations. Hobbies, listening to music, racial affinity for plants and animals. Family, unimportant, Fertilians are connected more to the race than to a select group. Character history, the first and only Fertilian in Starfleet, currently. She fell in love with the scents and sights of Earth, but has discovered that traveling to other planets is broadening. She graduated middle of her class. Upon Fertilier's entry into the Federation, Mackie was chosen to represent her species in the Starfleet Academy due to her unusual desire to travel. She's considered a bit of a freak on her own homeworld. How she got the nickname? During Academy days, to enable her, enable her olfactory interface, Mackie would say EO for short. Her roommate at Academy began to refer to her as Old MacDonald, citing the children's song, which eventually evolved into Mackie. Further details on fertilian biology and culture. Birth. They are one-time breeders of multiple litters. After birth, they immediately die. This is not usually discussed, as it is understood, but very private. However, I know the mechanics and the dark secrets. Childhood. Children run wild until, at about the age of three, they are raised to a self-determined maturity by young adults, as needed. However, parenting and even family is a non-issue. Very little emotional baggage. Morality. Sexual issues do not exist, but they do protect the young from danger and their society. There is very little strife on Fertilier, as there are no secrets. It is normal for Fertilians to pick up and drop friendship without concern. Population. About 75,000 on the main continent, mostly comprised of farmer scientists. Most Fertilians express their creative side publicly. Some are talented, some are not. History. Little is known about the past of Fertilier and nothing of ancestry. Character's name, Arya James. Rank, classified. Job, classified. Details, age, 27. Place of birth, Vulcan. Gender, female. 
Species of origin, Vulcan, Nacine, Elorian. Hair, black. Eyes, gray. Height, 5 feet 9 inches. Weight, 110 pounds. Skin tone, medium. Telepathic and empathic status. Telepathic and cyberpathic abilities. Body, petite. Marital status, none. Children, none. Temperament, calm, logical, but can swiftly become passionate. Hobbies and interests, reading, swimming, mountain climbing, camping, and the outdoors. Background. Graduated from Starfleet in an alternate timeline, Arya was almost erased in a temporal event, but managed to protect her Katra. Recently, she was born in the flesh by the creation of a new body via binary cloning. A member of the Aurora team, she has recently taken interest in putting her medical training to better service. Arya and Saren Integrated Timeline 2299 Eric James is born and begins. 2324 Savril is born. 2340 Eric begins living on Vulcan and is only slightly older than Savril mentally and physically. Both are human equal to around 13 or 14 and entering puberty. 2342 Eric and Savril are bonded in what should have been a harmless children's game. 2344 Eric and Savril begin pursuing higher degrees at the Vulcan Science Academy. 2355 Eric and Savril set out for a symposium. The runabout suffers damage during a plasma storm to the warp core. They make an emergency landing on the life-supporting third moon of Trellos 6. Savril experiences an early pun far due to the moon's unique psionic field, disrupting Savril's already tenuous emotional control. Eric and Savril spend Savril's entire pregnancy on the moon awaiting rescue and attempting to survive. The ship is slowly cannibalized to ensure their survival and that of their child. 2356. Arya is born in secret on the third moon of Trellos Six, and the three live there until they are rescued by a Ferengi trade ship and granted passage to the nearest habitable planet. Admiral Tucker is the first member of the family that is informed of the situation, and she convinced the two new parents to reveal the birth of their child to Savril's parents. 2364. Savril and Eric both attend Starfleet Academy. 2369. Savril is posted on the Anasazi. Eric continues school and takes a posting at the Fleet Yards to remain planetside to pursue further degrees and look after Arya during Savril's first posting. 2371. Eric starts to fully remember his previous lives with the return of the Nexus. Starts the initial design phase of the Aurora Shuttle as a father-daughter project. Eric and Arya are injected with nanites, partly to discover the gene that allows him to survive temporal flux. Eric is recruited by the Department of Temporal Affairs. Arya begins the Academy at age 15 and is a natural prodigy. 2373. Arya graduates. Timeline changes due to Borg interference at Earth's first contact. Arya is swept from the timeline and presumed erased, but gives her Katra to her father. Savril is affected by the shift and never meets Eric James. Eric takes a leave of absence from Starfleet and throws himself into getting his daughter back. Saren begins building what would become the Caretakers. 2374. Eric spends a year working on the Prometheus Project as a civilian consultant. 2376. Eric officially returns to Starfleet and is given the go-ahead for the Aurora Project as he moves his work to Leah Station when he encounters David and Savril. Aurora Project enters prototype phase and Aurora Hologram with Arya's Katra is brought online. Saren cements her power in an alternate universe. The second Aurora prototype, Arya, is constructed as a potential temporal vessel for DTI. Eric is given command and ownership of the Aurora as part of the agreement with DTI. David and Savril are married on Risa in a private ceremony. 2378. 
Savril and David's twins are born. Eric is married while on extended tour with the Aurora. 2380. Eric posted on Tiberius, and Arias Katra is reborn to a binary clone body that is near what would have been her chronological age. 2382. Elizabeth, age 1, joins the James family in a predestination paradox. 2383. Saren returns briefly. Arya, Saren, and Savril return to the alternate universe in search of Naval. Saren becomes pregnant with a child of Nathan Quinn. Name David Andrew Reese. Rank Starfleet Ensign. Field Science, Biology, Chemistry, Space Phenomenon. Gender Male. Species Human. Species Origin Earth. Ethnic Group Caucasian, also relating back to Native American bloodlines. Born. 2356. Place of birth, Bigora's Colony. Father, Commander Caleb Reese. Mother, Dr. Veronica Swift Reese. Siblings, younger brother, Dylan Reese. Younger sister, Dorothy Reese. Hair, brown, eyes green. Height, 6 foot. Weight, 150. Skin tone, white. Telepathic and empathic status. Understanding of others. Body average. Marital status, single. Habits. Organization, careful and watches everything. Likes, history, culture and science. Dislikes, selfishness. Fears, small spaces. Ambitions, finding self-worth. Attitude, nice, shy and unconfident. Hobbies, sword fighting and researching history, cultures and science. David Andrew Reese was born on the Begoras colony, a planet far from Starfleet Command on Earth. The people of Begoras were people of all cultures and species. Starfleet had constructed the colony as a connection to the race beyond the known occupied space. It was commanded by Commander Caleb Reese, father of David Reese. The colony became an interspace gathering for many cultures. People wishing to trade, gather, settle arguments and live came to Begoras. All the different race living on the planet raised the need for policing when racism became an issue. Commander Reese and his Starfleet officer took the job of controlling the people of Begoras. David who grew up with many different races understood the way many responded to situations and how to deal with them. He and his younger siblings were also introduced to a large amount of cruelty for reasons of race. David had many friends from Begoras, many of whom alien races. He took up many customs and hobbies not normal to an average human child. He followed in his father's footsteps and joined Starfleet. He went through the academy with a strange feeling of being out of place. His customs were just different. He studied in the science field not wanting to be a doctor like his mother. He had seen many crazy things growing up in the hospital. He wasn't squeamished in the least after Begoras. He was just leaving the academy when Dylan joined. David just hopes he will get a good post. Lieutenant Ryla Drett. Her field is the Assistant Chief Medical Officer, Internal Medicine, OBGYN, Pediatrician. Her rank is Lieutenant. Her species of origin is a joined trill. Her age... Her trill symbiont is 300 Earth years old, but her trill humanoid is 30. She joined 10 years prior to assignment to Tiberius. 
Her previous hosts were Cabric, a male, died at 25, scaling the Terran ice cliffs. Phalaris, female, an artist who made her living painting the portraits of bureaucrats, lived to see her great-great-grandchildren before she died. Emile, a female, a musician who taught at the Terran Music Academy until her death 70 years later. Amura, a female, a curator at the Deveritin Museum. She raised five children, three of which grew to adulthood. Genarium, female, a botanist who discovered several rare plant species, one of which was later used in the vaccine that cured Uparat disease. Genarium died unexpectedly from an allergic reaction to a fruit she discovered in the Valorep's third moon. Ryla Dret's place of birth was the Trill homeworld. She, of course, is female. Her hair is short and messy blonde hair. Her eyes are doe-colored. She's 5 foot 2, 110 pounds, light complexion with two rows of spots that come together at the nape of her neck and run from her her forehead to toe. She has no telepathic or empathic status. Her body is light and athletic build. Her face is oval-shaped, friendly face, dimples which she hates, and they form when she smiles. Her marital status is single. She has no children. Some of her habits are that she twirls her short locks as she thinks, sometimes bite her lower lip when concentrating. Her quarters are messy, like her hair. She likes wild cave exploration, peanut butter, Terran music, and children. She doesn't like confrontation. Her ambitions and goals are to sit in the captain's chair. She heard it's com a comfortable seat, which she achieved in Season 7 when Captain Quinn invited her to have a seat. The rumors were correct. It was comfortable, but she soon realized the comfort was intended to offset the responsibilities that came with command. She quickly gave the seat back to Quinn. Her other aspirations are to discover and map the cave systems of New Worlds, to have a family of her own, and to one day become a chief medical officer. Her temperament, daring, witty, committed, chronically late, very slow to anger, but when she's mad, watch out. Her hobbies, hollow vids and caving. Her family, her mother is Charatinos, her father, Albert Imerin. Siblings, three older sisters, Alima Marion, Bredi Tinos, and Cinda Marion. After Dret's first host, the symbiote decided it would rather die than be joined to another male, for Kabrick was a hothead and a daredevil who kicked the bucket way too soon. So Dret has been lucky that every host since Kabrick has been an even-tempered female who lives out her life happily and quietly except for one, Ryla. Though her occupation is fairly anodyne, Ryla Dret seems to enjoy endangering herself when off-duty. Her preferred means of jeopardizing their lives is caving, and she has narrowly avoided death on many shore-leave adventures. Dret was joined to Ryla while the host was attending Starfleet's Academy. Her first assignment, as a joint trill, was on the USS Boris Yegorov, a medical vessel named for the first physician in space. While serving aboard the Agorov, she cared for the expectant mothers and aided the eradication of birth defects, which threatened to wipe out the people of Severus VI. 
Seven years later, she was recruited by Dr. Peterson and transferred to the Tiberius in his obstetrics specialist. A year after the destruction of the Tiberius, she accepted a post as assistant chief medical officer on the Arabella. Character name, Naval. Age, four. Place of birth, San Francisco, Starfleet Medical. Gender, male. Species of origin, human Vulcan. Hair, black. Eyes, brown. Height, 35 inches. Weight, 20 pounds. Skin tone, light-complected, rosy cheeks. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, small for his age for both humans and Vulcans. Face, dimples, arched brows, pointed ears. Marital status, child, unmarried. Children, child, unmarried. Habits, talking too much, asking rapid-fire questions. Quarters, lives in his mother's quarters, which are neat. Likes, playing with other children, watching ships dock in the shuttle bay. Dislikes, plumic soup. Ambitions and goals, to be big and to see his daddy. Temperament, talkative, outgoing, articulate, smart and well-mannered. Hobbies, drawing and playing with his hollow dog. Family, mother, Commander Savril. Father, Agent David Locke. Siblings, his twin sister, Marin. Character name, Marin. Age, four. Place of birth, San Francisco, Starfleet Medical. Gender, female. Species of origin, human Vulcan. Hair, black. Eyes, brown. Height, 39 inches. Weight, 25 pounds. Skin tone, light-complected, rosy cheeks. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, small for her age for both human and Vulcans. Face, dimples, arched brows, pointed ears. Marital status, child, unmarried. Children, child. Habits, shy, hides behind her mother. Quarters, lives in her mother's quarters, which are neat. Likes, playing with her brother, seeing Counselor Margon. Dislikes, loud people, strangers. Ambitions and goals, to see her daddy. Temperament, shy, quiet yet articulate, smart and well-mannered. Hobbies, drawing and playing with her hollow dog, playing music with Counselor Margon. Family, mother, Commander Savril. Father, Agent David Locke. Siblings, her twin brother, Naval. Name, Lester Garris. Rank, Ensign. Position, Engineering Officer. Born, Stardate 27685.4. Place of birth, Proxima Centauri Colony. Gender, male. Species of origin, human. Hair, dark brown. Eyes, dark brown. Height, 5'11". Weight, 190. Skin tone, olive. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, athletic. Face, oval. Marital status, single. Children, none. Habits, cracks fingers when stressed. Quarters, neat and tidy, very few personal possessions on display. Likes, admires Vulcans and their culture. Discussing scientific subjects with like-minded people. Dislikes, over-the-top loud personalities. Ambitions and goals. Believes his analytical mind and intelligence make him suited for command. He's probably wrong. Temperament. A private person who keeps his emotions in check and struggles in relationships with others. Hobbies. Calto. He's not very good to his annoyance. Inventing and tinkering. Family. Mother. 
Julia Garris, assistant for the Federation Council currently assigned to Earth. Father, Donald Garris, engineer at Proxima Centauri Colony, deceased. Siblings, none. Character history. Lester Garris was born at Proxima Centauri Colony, one of the earliest human colonies that predate the forming of the Federation. His father's family is descended from one of the original founding colonists and was an engineer at the colony. His mother works with the Federation Council and is currently on Earth. Growing up, Lester was a quiet child. He had no siblings and often played alone. Lester would rather read a book than play outside with other kids. He was a curious child who liked to know everything about things that piqued his interest. Science was his favourite subject, and by six years old he could recite the Federation member worlds and knew what class they were. He was advanced in school, which caused tension with other kids. He struggled to make friends and became quite distrustful of everybody, even those who were friendly with him. When Lester was 16 years old, his father was accidentally killed by a plasma conduit explosion. His mother took a position with the Federation Council at their Vulcan headquarters. The death of his father and the relocation to Vulcan took its emotional toll on Lester. He spent a lot of time with his father. His mother always seemed busier with her work, so it was his father who monitored him academically. It was his father's background that inspired Lester in his interest in science and technology. He knew his father wanted him to carry on the family line as an engineer at the colony. His father did not understand that Lester wanted more from life. He did not want to spend his life at the colony replacing power regulators. He wanted to learn about the galaxy. He felt guilty for not following his father's wishes and felt distant to his mother. Lester was more alone than ever. Due to his academic skills, Lester was enrolled at the Vulcan Science Academy and could not believe how disciplined and advanced his fellow students were. Of course, he knew all about Vulcan and its people, but to experience it firsthand was something different altogether. For the first time in his life, he felt below average, but there was no need to try to fit in, to worry about what others felt about him. They just didn't. It was not logical. He began to realize that living in a world where emotion was not expressed was an advantage. Lester allowed his confused feelings to bury themselves and was motivated to perform by the disciplined Vulcan minds around him. It had been two years until his mother had noticed the change in him and became concerned. Even then, it had taken a declaration from Lester to his mother that he wanted to live life as a Vulcan. She had the utmost respect for Vulcans, but her son was not Vulcan. She spoke to Saron, a Vulcan tutor at the Science Academy. Saron agreed to meet with Lester and his mother. Saron informed Lester that humans cannot invest in the mental discipline that is the key to success. It takes a very disciplined mind. Vulcans do not just suppress their emotions. They must know them intimately to control them. You do not control your emotions. Your apparent lack of emotions is just an emotional response in itself. Seek assistance with your kind. Lester and his mother relocated once more, this time back to Earth, where his mother was born. After agreeing to counselling, Lester was accepted into Starfleet Academy based on his academic record and a letter of recommendation from the Vulcan Science Academy. He excelled in the sciences and graduated in the top 5% of his class. Although he has been on active duty for a number of years, 
he has failed to gain much promotion. Lester no longer has regular counseling sessions. Character's name, Syra Frederick. Born 23 years ago. Place of birth, Earth. Gender, female. Species of origin, half human, half Orion. Hair, black. Eyes, blue. Height, 5 foot. Weight, 115 pounds. Skin tone, light green. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, slender. Marital status, single. Children, none. Habits, choose on bottom lip when anxious. Likes, music, particularly jazz. Poker, meditation, and poetry. Dislikes, dishonesty, dancing in public, and people tapping her on the shoulder. It's how many of her past and present brawls begin. Ambitions and goals. Travel and see what the universe has to offer. Temperament. Energetic. Relatively outgoing. Uses sarcasm for humor. Manages to keep her quick temper in check, albeit with some difficulty. Hobbies. Singing. Playing the piano. Reading. Baking. Family. Mother. Miley. Disowned. Catherine Frederick. Stepmother. Father, Bradley Frederick. Siblings, one younger half-sister, Sylvia. Character History Syra was born to Bradley and Miley Frederick 23 years ago in San Francisco, California. Bradley was still a Starfleet officer when he fell in love with the Orion slave girl, Miley, and married her shortly after their first meeting. As soon as the news of Syra's conception was discovered, Bradley and Maylee returned to San Francisco, where Bradley would become a Starfleet Academy instructor, choosing to provide a stable home life for his new family. However, nearly a year after Cyrus' birth, Maylee disappeared without any evidence of where she was going or how to contact her. Cyra would gain a new mother figure in Catherine, whom Bradley remarried when Cyra was three, the perfect age to be a flower girl for her mommy and daddy's wedding. Her first memory of her biological mother occurred when she was 11 years old and Miley appeared on the front doorstep of her father's home. And later, the muffled sounds of a heated argument between her parents as Catherine kept both her and her six-year-old sister Sylvia out of sight. Her father would explain to Syra as gently as he could that her mother had joined the Orion Syndicate, but he was unable to give a reason as to why Miley portrayed their family in such a way. Haunted by this information, Syra spent most of her teenage years angry and resentful towards her mother for leaving and her father for not stopping her. She began to get into fights at school and sneaked away from home to walk the city streets during the late hours of the night. As Syra grew older, she also grew more reckless, despite any effect made by Bradley and Catherine. Miley would come into her daughter's life again after a chance meeting, and 16-year-old Syra would confront her about her ties to the Orion Syndicate and her reason behind abandoning her family to join them. Rather than getting the answers she's been craving, 
Saru was instead subjected to Meili's notice how similar they are to each other and the suggestion that Sari come with her to learn the ways of the Orion women to bring out her potential. Shocked and enraged by this meeting, Saru returned home that night and promised her father that she wanted nothing to do with Meili and she was determined to make him proud of her. Over the next several years, Saru would make positive changes for herself. Although she would never speak of her mother to anyone, she would take up the piano during these years of change and music would flood the Frederick household that served as a release of positive or negative emotion. Feeling ready to explore what was outside of her home, she began to look for job opportunities that would include traveling. It was her father that helped her find the position as a hostess for the afterburner, the lounge aboard the USS Arabella. <coughs> Lieutenant Nicholas Took Character's name, Nicholas Daniel Took, rank, lieutenant, born, 2345.6, place of birth, Deferian Province, Talvin 7, gender, male, species of origin, Telvian, hair, brown, eyes, green, height, 5'9", weight, 160. Skin tone, light. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, muscular. Face, kind. Marital status, single. Children, none. Habits, self-doubting. Quarters, very clean and sparse. Likes, earth chocolate. Dislikes, small tight places. Ambitions and goals, to enjoy every moment of living. Temperament, calm, kind. Hobbies, classical music, mythology studies, earth history. Family, mother Elizabeth, possibly deceased. Father, Daniel, possibly deceased. Siblings, three. Sister, Nyla, brother Nash, and brother Neville, possibly deceased. Character history. Nicholas was born on Telvian 7. His childhood was, to say the least, very rough. His planet is not part of the Federation. Two factions have been at war for thousands of years. Millions of people have died. Those who have gotten off-world are seen as beggars, thieves, or burdens to society. He escaped when he was 14. His parents managed to smuggle him off-world with a traitor. This traitor promised to bring him to Earth, but instead sold him to the Orion slave trade. It would be another six years before the Starfleet officer rescued him from his capture and brought him to Earth. He enrolled in Starfleet and knew this was where he was supposed to be. It was tough to fight the stigma of his race. He worked extra hard at the academy and graduated in the top 10% of his class. But there were sacrifices along the way. He barely had any friends and was seen very much as a loner. He was very happy when he was assigned to the Tiberius. He knew he would be able to start a new life for himself, but it seems that the prejudice at the academy followed him to the ship. Character's name, Jacob E. Maddock, Jack. Stats, rank, ensign, field, engineering. Born, 27 years old. Place of birth, New Berlin, Luna. Gender, male. Species of origin, human. Hair, medium length, brown. Eyes, hazel. Height, 5'9". Weight, 165. 
Skin tone, light, pale. Telepathic and empathic status, none. Body, strong, medium build. Face, analytical and stoic. Marital status, single. Children, none. Habits, carrying work home, staying till the job is done. Quarters, cluttered with electronics. Some projects intact, but mostly just parts strewn about. Likes, working as an engineering officer for the Federation. Dislikes, wasting time, inefficiency. Fears, death and failure. Ambitions and goals, become a chief engineer and later an engineering professor at Starfleet. Temperament, level-headed, slow to anger and steadfast in its conviction. Hobbies, research and development, including Noonien Sung Positronics Networks and Shipboard AIs. Family, mother Jessica Dunkirk Maddock works at Dunkirk AI Constructs. Father, Richard Maddock is a wholesale tech merchant. Siblings, Franklin Maddock works alongside his father in the tech trade. Tanya Maddock is a staff physician serving Starfleet on Earth. History. Jack Maddock was born in New Berlin to a family that was deeply entrenched in the technological industries. At the age of seven, his fate as a tech head was sealed when his parents started teaching him all they knew of science and technology. A short time later, he abandoned his bicycle for a hydrospanner and a tricorder. All career opportunities were offered to him from the New Berlin school system. However, the training provided by his parents enticed him so greatly, he never strayed from engineering. He excelled through grammar in high school. He did so well in his classes, he finished his two years early. After graduation at the age of 16, he joined his father's privatized tech merchant business. He spent two years there dealing and haggling with clients. This taught him devastatingly important lessons. Some people in human society were equally low and greedy as the Ferengi. At the age of 18, Jack joined the United Federation of Planets in order to serve humanity in the most effective way he knew. In the Federation, he knew he could help people and not be troubled with the wholesale costs, interest rates, or treasonous business travels. With extensive knowledge and technology, he was able to join Starfleet's enlisted crew with minimal training. He was overjoyed to find his first post aboard Starbase 375. For three years, Jack toiled and honed his skills in the bottom rung of various work crews. He loved his work, but he wanted something more. As an enlisted man, the best he could hope to become is a non-commissioned officer. He wanted to run a crew of his own. He wanted to lead people and to prioritize his own work schedule. Three years later, and after his third attempt, Jack was finally accepted into the academy. He had the technical skills to fix anything, just not the ability to command people to do the same. The academy remedied that problem, and then some. He learned a lot next year about being in command. He also spent most of his time running his own experiments, and by the time he graduated, he was entranced with Nunian Singh and his quest for making new positronic network reality, a passion that followed him throughout his later career. As an officer, Jack's first post was on USS Sutherland, NCC 72015. Aboard the Sutherland, he was in command of three repair crews and chairhead for the under, under the chief engineer. During the four years in the position, he held the best record for repair crew aboard. As the Sutherland systems aged, so did its directives. Its missions gradually changed from exploration and border defense to escort assignments and diplomatic envoys. Jack noticed this decrease in activity, and despite his excellent performance, he requested a transfer. It was granted, and within the next month, he was assigned to the USS Arabella. So I hope you enjoyed those character profile readings, and we will talk to you next week. So this is Kenny, hailing frequencies closed. 
All music on this podcast was performed by Rick Moyer or his royalty-free music. Also, I'd like to thank Metron 07 for the introduction music. Greetings, guildies. I'm Kenny. And I'm Jenny. And we're the host of a brand new podcast, Knights of the Guild, the official fan podcast of the web series The Guild. Each month, we'll bring you the latest news about the Guild cast, including what projects they're working on and what conventions they'll be attending. Also, we'll be updating you on the current season. Be it Season 2, which is currently airing on MSN Video, or Season 3, which is in the early pre-production stage. We'll talk about some behind-the-scenes fun of Season 2, as well as having cast, crew, and fan interviews. So head over to iTunes and subscribe to Knights of the Guild. Or go to our website for a direct download at knightsoftheguild.podbean.com. Zaboo! Hi, I'm Rick Moyer, and I want to tell you about my brand new podcast. It's called Take Him With You. Every week I talk about what's going on in my geeky little world of television, music, and in my faith. My hope is that in a world that can sometimes be really depressing, for at least a few moments you can be encouraged and smile a bit. So come check it out. www.takehimwithyou.com The weekly podcast that's spiritual not religious. I'd love to have you listen. Thanks.